Good morning. This is our first broadcast on the topic of international relations um, as it relates to Hollywood films and how it's represented. Um, we are a group of Murray State Governor's Scholars for the year of 2016. Um, and the point of this podcast, uh, as was previously mentioned, is to really uh, share our thoughts and opinions in regards to uh, how international relations and how our country deals with other countries as is seen through Hollywood film, how it's represented um, and how Hollywood tends um, to to describe the situations um, that we experience in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, so I guess what the first thing that's in order is to go around and introduce ourselves. Um, my name is Zeb Hart. I'm from Montgomery County, Kentucky, and I go to the Craft Academy at Moorhead State University. Um, so that's me, Kyle. My name is Kyle Capps. I go to Scott County High School in Georgetown, Kentucky. My name is Otavio Menezes. I go to Oldham County High School, which is just outside Louisville, Kentucky. And my name is Brianna Bull. I go to Louisville Male High School in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay, um, so guys, I think the first thing that we should discuss is, you know, over this past week, what we feel the encompassing theme has been, the thesis, if you will. So Kyle, do you have any insight into, into what you believe uh, we can take away from this past week? Of course. And the basis of what we've been learning this week is foreign policy and sort of some broad themes about international relations. And when we start to apply this to the film that we've seen, I think the basic component really boils down to analyzing the relationship of the United States to the Middle East and determining whether this film thinks that it's a hopeful or it's a despairing topic to begin with. Yeah, I tend to agree. Otavio, do you have an opinion on this topic? Well, as we've seen in the movie Syriana, uh, the government usually plays a role that the citizens of the country may not really like, but they do it anyway for the greater good, in air quotes, uh, for the interest of the country's economics. Yeah. Yeah, um, going along with that, the movie focuses on like many different aspects of the countries that are um, having relations, in this case, United States and the Middle East. Um, there's obviously social, political, economic, and military factors that play in when you look at the issues between the two. So, yeah, I think this is uh, some are emphasized and some are equal, but mm -hmm. yeah, I think this is a good point. And I think the first thing we should do is go ahead and identify the movie in a little bit greater detail. Uh, as Otavio said, the movie was Syriana. Um, and basically, to give you an idea of how this class that we're taking is structured, each week we'll watch a movie and we'll be doing a podcast um, that tries to tie together that movie with the topic of discussion for that week. Um, so, this past week, uh, the movie was Syriana, and we talked a lot about the role of the United States in the world. Um, we talked a lot about the Middle East and the United States strategies, um, and the um, oh, foreign policy uh, of the Bush administration in regards to uh, the Middle East. So, in regards to Syriana. This movie is set mainly um, overseas in a, a fictitious country known as Syriana. 
And the whole idea is that a large oil corporation, um, Connex, Connex um, lost the rights um, to drill for oil in this country to a Chinese corporation. And in an attempt to uh, stay stable, this large company, Connex, uh, has proposed a merger with a smaller company uh, known as Killeen. Yeah. And, uh, and it is the U.S. government um, that is looking into whether or not this violates um, any, any law. Um, and that's just half of it. The other half uh, of the plot of the movie has a lot to do with uh, the behind the scenes of you know, what may cause instability in the region. And we see how the United States and their allies, how they, their actions really do uh, destabilize the region. Um, so that's a little bit about the movie. Um, does anybody else have anything to say on it? Yeah, I think uh, the majority of this, the plot revolves around this like um, story of secession in uh, the, the nation in which this film was set, to where the emir uh, is aging out, and his it's really a struggle between two brothers, one who leans more to the capitalistic side of the United States, and who's really pro-oil, and one who's wanting to restrict the sort of um, oil influence that the United States uh, has over his country. And the dichotomy between these two brothers is really what the story centers around. And uh, finding out which play respect one side or the other is really one of the most fascinating aspects of this film. That's fair. Um, so now I think I'd, I'd like to get into a discussion regarding the the uh, the relationship um, that this film has with what we know about United States foreign policy in the Middle East. Um, so does anybody have some good insight into, over the past decade, what the main theme behind the United States foreign policy has been? Well, I feel like it's a, a lashback into the recent events of terror, if you want to say. Uh, after 9-11, the United States has been more involved in, in the Middle East for both economic and uh, social reasons. And I feel like this is out of, like, I don't know, vengeance, because uh, that's just the American way. Yeah, I feel like there's like a constant struggle between, um, with all the terrorism issues, like a struggle between when do we give the government the rights to do things that we aren't so clear on, and like when we, um, we want national security for the greater good of the people, obviously, as Otavio was saying, and, but that could get in the way of our civil liberties, so it's a constant struggle between what we do in the moment, and when we look back on it, is it really for the greater good? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting point. I think it brings us to the idea of the imperial executive. Uh, I read a book once that was titled something along the lines of the imperial presidency and it started um, to break down the foreign policy and the domestic policy of presidents dating back to FDR and how we see that FDR was really the first president to drastically expand the powers of the executive um, through expansion of the bureaucracy and creating uh, so many agencies that do so many different things um, and and really taking the quote unquote law making uh, apparatus in the United States government away from the legislative branch and really seating it semi firmly in the executive branch. And I think that 
has that phenomenon has only grown more relevant um, as time has gone on. Um, certainly, uh, during times of war, um, the executive does seem to adopt a more central role in how how we're going to uh, take on the world, if you will, as Americans. You know, through the Cold War, uh, post Cold War, and then even post 9/11, we see that the executive is adopting a role of the parent and and is becoming less and less accountable to the people because the people know less and less about what the executive is doing and that can be dangerous I think mm -hmm. um, but it's certainly something that's happening and that's a central theme that we see in this film as well to where the rise of sort of these informal powers in response to the petroleum politics of this film especially in, in respect to the you as the attorney portrayed in this film because a lot of the actions that the U.S. government is conducting in uh, this foreign country of Syriana uh, defies a lot of international agreements and sort of showcases the extent to which the U.S. is willing to go after uh, vast oil opportunities regardless of what stands in their way because uh, Dean Whiting, a character in this film, is uh, hired to ensure that the uh, U.S. does not appear to have broken any antitrust uh, laws through their intervention into this area. But in all honesty, his character plays more of the part of someone who's trying to skim the line between legality and uh, sort of illegality to where he's trying to make the U.S. seem as, as positive as possible. However, in all honesty, the Bob Barnes, George Clooney's character in this, perfectly represents the extent to which illegality and covert operations have taken control of the foreign policy of the United States to where executive orders in the State Department and the rising role of the CIC, they, they all illustrate that the government is becoming more and more irresponsive to the people and is more concerned with fast pace and immediate action rather than sort of like slow and like constant conversation about whether we should even be conducting these acts. So I guess one, one thing that I do want to ask all of you is do you think that that is proper for the government to take this kind of control into its own hand in a very undemocratic way you know I guess what I would like to know um, from everyone is are the people um, informed enough are they uh, well-intentioned enough to be able to make decisions in a democratic fashion or are they too apathetic is it too dangerous to let the people know what's going on in the world and let them make the decisions or a third stance is it feasible? You know, when we're talking about uh, certain operations, we can't be broadcasting that our government has certain intentions on the radio, per se, because that's dangerous for us. So what's everybody's take on that? In my personal opinion, I think that the degree to which the government has taken control over all actions, both foreign and domestic, illustrates sort of like a reactionary fervor from 9-11. Security became the priority after that event. However, the state is sort of resembled like Hobbes' Leviathan, to which it's taking all of its power and all of its strength and sort of forming it in the executive. And that is a very potent strength because it allows the government to act decisively and quickly. However, it also removes a lot of democratic acts, aspects to a country that considers itself one of the crowning democracies of the globe. And I think it's a tragic that so many rights have to be infringed upon, and liberties as well. However, I think the rising power of the executive and of the government in general is possibly a good thing. Not to the extent to which it is right now, but I think the times in which we're living call for immediate action. And the more democratic we try to make the immediate actions of foreign policy, 
the more we get bogged down in bipartisanship and trying to really overthink things. And a government needs to be decisive and quickly responsive in order to protect national security and to ensure that the best intentions are always met. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good point. And Octavio, I'm curious. I want your take on, for a country that prides itself on being the leading democracy in the world, how can it, uh, in, in such a two-sided way, also be so unwilling uh, to provide policies such as the Patriot Act, the expansion of the National Security Agency, that would seem to go in the face of the very democratic principles that we hold so dear? That's kind of a tough question to answer. I mean, I think the United States is so set in its like exceptional ways that uh, it believes it needs to have the like almost all of the power before the world can actually succeed together. So it sometimes has to make sacrifices in order to do that. And if it means sacrificing people's liberties, I guess the United States will be willing to do that. So in your personal opinion, is that acceptable? Um, to me, I don't think so. Because uh, the country was built on these foundations, and that's what made this country great. But now after taking those away, I'm not really sure that it will uh, lead to greater things. But just a question to go off what he's talking about here, Otavio. Do you think the framers could have ever se foreseen sort of this like global terrorism, which, which is a constant and near invisible threat to the United States? Do you think the same constitutional rights that they created in defense against sort of like a global empire through the British, do you think those are still applicable and those are still to be defended at all costs in the 21st century? I think now things get so complicated to where, you know, like post 9-11, we deal with things that I don't think things are similar to how they were back then, but things are also a lot different and there are people that are much more at risk, much faster. Things happen much faster and much more complicated and not they're not official, they give no warning. And with, um, with democracy at stake, I think it's hard to question if the United States, um, it's hard to question the fact that do we extend our democracy and what we were built on to the rest of the world, or are we just focused on ourselves? You know, I, I think that's I, a central question. I think that's a very, very good question. And me personally, you know, I tend to take the side of we can't compromise the very sacred ideas that our Constitution is built upon. You know, the idea of due process, something that was not inherently built into the Bill of Rights as it were. Now, we do have the right to a fair. Um, and speedy trial. However, the idea of due process really came along um, with the 14th Amendment, and that's something we had to fight for as a nation. You know, a bloody civil war to have the right to due process. I'm innocent until I am proven guilty. I have due process of law, and we really have to wrangle with, does that remain a domestic policy? Does the Constitution only govern the actions of the United States in regard to domestic policy? Or does it also govern the United States' foreign policy? And I tend to believe um, that with the Constitution being the supreme law of the land, uh, they are inseparable. Any form of policy laid down by the United States, both foreign and domestic, must be governed by uh, this piece of literature that for the past 250 years um, has 
been the difference between a rogue nation state and the United States. Um, that's my two cents. And in respect to that, uh, Wendell Berry, who's an author we've read in our class, he made a really compelling po point in an article that we've read of his where he says, what does it truly mean to have these constitutional guarantees when they're abridged in the most um, in the most difficult time possible? Do they truly have? Do they truly carry a, a substantial weight when they can be impeded upon in times of tragedy? And I think that sort of showcases the executive and the extent to which his personality and the sort of individual that he is dictates that. Because one example of this is Abraham Lincoln, who during the course of the Civil War suspended habeas corpus. And that was a drastic infringement on the people's rights, but he considered it a necessity in order to protect the very essence of the Union. And when you contrast that versus um, someone like Richard Nixon, who's sort of like the best example of sort of an individual that the extent to which he, he promoted the power of the executive and his own power, especially with sort of like his refusal to release tapes and the extent to which he was willing to go to find out election results in the Watergate scandal. They all illustrate the extent to which the American people saw him as unfavorable and the impeachment charges that were filed against him illustrate this. So I think this, this sort of topic overall really showcases how the people and especially public opinion come into this matter because when, when a president is perceived as fair and just and his goals are seen that way, we're more likely to surrender these rights and we're more likely to see them as justifiable. While when we see a president as sort of a nasty or deplorable individual, we see these infringements as stabbing at the very core of what it means to be an American. And like we, when it's going to keep us safe, we can't really, we most of the time don't have an issue with them, but whenever it's not about us, then that's when we have an issue with them, I feel like. Yeah, I think, you know, with all things, um, humans are these socially emotional beings. And when things are going great, we tend to believe and all congregate around one idea. But when things begin to go south, we all have this very violent knee-jerk reaction in the opposite direction. And the danger of that is, I think, pretty inherent, pretty obvious. You know, we are not, at least as a collective, going to make the most logical decisions in time of danger and strife. And therefore, we must have a steady-handed um, governing body. You know, the reason we have a republic and not a direct democracy is that buffer. That's the reason we elect officials to be represented, because even when the populace is terrified, the populace is willing to go to drastic measures that may uh, even go in the face of our constitutional beliefs, uh, we have a representative body that says, oh, hold on there, guys. Let's think about this. Let's make a logical choice. And an extension of that, what we have been able to do over the past century is unbelievable. What I mean by that is our Congress giving up so many of its rights to the executive in the form of an expanding bureaucracy. We talk about the representative body, the Congress being that buffer um, between knee-jerk reactions and logical thought. Well, the rights and the powers of that Congress keep decreasing, and it's not as if the executive is just going in and saying, give me this power, give me that power. It's that the Congress is willing to give them up, give up these powers to create law, create policy, and oversee uh, how our foreign policy plays out. And in 
because of that, we now have this executive that is so large and so out of control um, that they literally have uh, a cabinet member or uh, some lower down that is in control of almost every single aspect of United States policy. Um, and this is dangerous. We see that the Constitution, as the Founding Fathers wished, would put most emphasis on the legislative branch. Article 1 is the largest section of the Constitution, and that governs the powers of the Congress. Yet, in modern times, it seems reversed. It seems that the executive has adopted more powers than they ever rightfully have. And I sort of respectfully disagree because I think this all comes back to the expanded pace of the national government overall. And I really respect what you're saying because the framers clearly illustrated the legislative body is the key aspect of the United States government. That's where the representation, that's where true debate over policy originates. However, starting with Abraham Lincoln and especially during the 21st century, the pace of change of the globe and the requirements of the government are becoming more and more substantial. And while there's been a constant wrestle between the legislative and executive, I think it's always been a two-foot or a two-fold battle to where there has been constant pushes through, um, for instance, the War Powers Act, where the, the Congress sort of gives the president this capability to send in troops for 16 to 90 days. However, there's always checks on that power, such as the ability of Congress to ensure to um, verify appointments that the president is willing to make to his bureaucracy. And even with the expanding role of sort of like the National Security Council and the National Security Advisor and uh, the State Department, the Congress is constantly wrestling with that. And I think that point, the point to which the Congress and the executive continue to wrestle over these issues, and in some cases the president comes out on top, in some cases Congress comes out on top, I think that illustrates the basis for what the framers always wanted, is this check and balance. And regardless of how much power one assumes, there will always be a tug by the other to ensure that democracy is upheld, and there's always a check on that, to where in in contrast, sort of the emir portrayed in this film has near unlimited power. He has no representative body uh, during the course of this film to check him. So he has the capability to deny oil contracts to the U.S. or to China or to anyone. And I think that sort of shows the contrast between the United States, even its current form, where the executive is gaining more and more power, versus a lot of countries around the world where there really are no checks and balances on them. Yeah, I, I agree. But I'm also going to say that no matter who the blame gets put on for any of the decisions the United States has made, whether it be there has been a lot of consequences as far as the president and or the Congress, the decisions that have been made a long time ago and even recently that the world's having to face today because of it. And the, these consequences are bigger than honestly I think we could even imagine. And that's why the world is struggling so much to cooperate as far as, especially in this movie that we see between the United States and the Middle East. Otavio, I'm curious, when we discuss, you know, the National Security Council and National Security Advisor and all of the different institutions that the executive, the president, has at his disposal um, as advisors when making difficult decisions about foreign policy, um, I want to know what you think. Should those individuals be appointed as they are now um, by the executive? You know, the president can surround himself with the people that he wants to surround himself with. So if he wants to hear 
one particular side of things. He can hear whatever he wants to hear. Should that be a bureaucratic institution, or should it be something like the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, made up of elected officials, made up of officials with differing opinions? Um, and you know, with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, for instance, what they talk about is not open to the public. And the case could be made that such a panel of selected uh, elected officials um, would not be open to the public, but it'd still be elected and accountable to the people. Do you think the president should have the right to select the people he listens to, or they should be appointed to him by the Congress? What do you think? I feel like um, elected officials seem uh, like they'd represent more people, but most of those people don't really know what's going on to actually elect those officials who represent them. So I think the president has more knowledge, so he it would be better for him to uh, appoint the people that he thinks would carry out the job better than uh, more uh, more people who don't know as much. And to sort of um, bridge off what Otavio was saying there, I think the growing role of bureaucracy just showcases how power is sort of being dispersed even further to where the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and its counterpart in the House, they're both good measures because they, they provide politicians with the capability to discuss foreign policy and to have their voices heard. But in that same extent, uh, when the president decides on who he wants to fill these positions in his bureaucracy, such as the National Security Council, they're largely technocrats, people that he's observed are qualified in this field and are thus capable of providing him with useful information or capable of leading foreign policy in this country. So the more power that's dispersed, whether it be between the Congress or the State Department or the NSC, they all illustrate sort of like this dispersal of power, which I think is overall a good thing because as we've been talking about here, the growing power of the executive is an alarming thing, regardless of whether you're pro or for it, just the extent of the power that's being concentrated in the executive is concerning. However, through the bureaucracy and through the Senate and the House, we, we still see that power is not being fully concentrated in the executive. It's never going to be concentrated in exclusively one individual. It will always be tied to an amalgamation of different people with different views different perspectives to keep the conversation always varied and interesting. Well, I do think it's interesting, you know, we have this example, this film, um, and we had discussed how we would be using this film as an augmentation to our uh, different opinions, to our different arguments. I wonder, you know, in this film we have the United States who has lost this bid um, to drill for oil in Syriana. And the natural reaction for the United States is have the CIA go and kill this rising prince who is going to open the oil market up um, to a much more open bidding system, which naturally would hurt U.S. oil interests. Well, the CIA is an extension of the bureaucracy, and it seems to me that the almost knee-jerk reaction of the executive in line with what we have just been talking about was to go after this new um, rising Amir, even though he held the core values of the United States very near and dear to his heart, it was not convenient economically. And so I wonder, had the decision not been left to a very select group of bureaucratic individuals, but rather been left to a group of elected officials of varying party, varying belief, would there have been a different opinion? Would there have been a different solution proposed instead of, let's kill this man? I think it would have been a very different conclusion. 
But I think in that same regard, we have to sort of reference personal politics when we're talking about this. To where if the United States Congress was debate over the over the basis of whether the U.S. should try to like explore this contract or whether it should continue to put pressure in this region, we're still debating petroleum politics. However, the executive is more in line with what we consider like personal politics. He's capable of communicating openly with the emir or with these princes as uh, he's able to communicate with foreign dignitaries in a friendly and hospitable relationship. While I think the House and Senate would make it a much more bureaucratic and long-term affair, and this is one instance where I think the executive needs to act decisively and quickly because this contract, the Chinese were able to gain it either because of their resources or because of their speed. And in either case, the United States needs to respond immediately. And it's quite unfortunate that it had to be that the CIA and all these negative forces toppled a possible democratic regime in order to ensure the United States got its pro got a favorable portion of this contract. However, it still remains that the executive is the only force capable of moving at a speed to even act on this contract. I think that's a good point, but I'd like to, I'd like to move on. Um, and I think now we need to get into the idea of the United States in an international role versus an isolationist role. You know, we see prior to the emergence of the United States post-World War One, we see that the United States was mostly an isolationist country. We didn't want to be messed with, you know, aside from the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine. Um, we'd really set, we'd really set precedent that we were not going to become involved with, in other nations' conflicts. And so it begs the question, why all of a sudden does the United States feel that it has the right um, to impose its major beliefs, its major internal politics onto the rest of the world? And does the United States have the right to do that? I want to get your all's opinion on that, and I want to start with Otavio. Um, Otavio, you know, in general, um, what is your opinion? Do you believe that the United States has the right now to come from this isolationist role that it did it had for you know a uh, century and a half to this more um, premier role that it now and and has held uh, for some time now? I feel like the moral. Um solution would be to uh, let other countries work their way up and develop into uh, almost equivalent equals to the United States. However, greed and power prevent that because the United States is so used to being like at the top that they can't uh, fathom being below anyone else. So they try to uh, take others down with them or take others down to keep them at the top. And I don't think that's right. I mean, I think I feel like everyone has a right to live uh, the best life that they can and fulfill their potential. But see, greed takes that away from people. In what the United States will often use to justify their relations with other countries and their when they step in and take control or try to take control of a situation, you know, democracy values like Christianity, morals. But a lot of the times, it turns into something that's more for you know, like you were saying, greed and power within the world, in the worldly context, I mean. Is it that shallow, though? Um, because to assert such a thing would be to say that the United States' main reason for becoming a world player is simply to push its influence out onto the world. And we can understand that, you know, the United States' containment policy started by Truman of, you know, 
containing communism was a projection of our values onto the world. You know, we tried to share our democracy with the world. But to me, that's not so greedy. That's not so dark. That is sharing what we know to be the best solution for governing with the rest of the world. Because, you know, we, we tried to reach places that had never been able to experience um, the great many benefits of, of a democracy. But I think along that same lines, when you're talking about sharing, you also talk about imposing. And I think in the dichotomy of the Cold War, where it became truly an argument over who's willing to be a communist nation, who's willing to be a capitalist nation, it often became, it often reached the point in the U.S. where we became involved in sticky situations of, of undemocratic regimes, of authoritarian uh, dictators, to which they were willing to be open to our uh, economic uh, means, our capitalist society, but we were repressing democracy in order to do that. And I think even more, past the extent of the Cold War, I think Syriana truly reflects the foreign policy of a current United States, where returning to the whole isolationist versus um, inter internationalism. The economic policy of the United States truly is internationalist. We're trying to get everyone to join the pod of the profitable and respectable nations that are already part of our economic partners. However, in a political sense, we're more along the lines of an isolationist or you, um, or a you, uh, you thank you, you a unilateralist nation because we are only willing to act. We are willing to act politically alone if necessary because we see that as an extension of our right, our capability. Even if we're in, involved in the UN or NATO or any of these other international organizations, we see the United States as being capable and prominent enough to where we can act on our own accord if necessary. And I think that contrast between our economic isolate, our, our economic internationalism and our political isolationism is truly one of the issues that's very prominent in this film and leads to a vast quantity of the, of the conflict here because economics essentially went out. In times of crisis, should the United States conform to international law? You know, we uh, subscribe to the UN. We are a member. We are an active member. Um, we subscribe to many other international treaties and organizations that assert a level of law. But during a time of crisis, when the United States is being threatened directly, um, should they do as is written in that law, follow that law, or should they be willing to, quote, go it alone to protect uh, their own interest? I guess it depends on the situation because a lot of the times there are benefits of following the worldly context and then there are also times when we can't rely on anyone else to defend ourselves completely because that's just not realistic. Do you have an opinion on this? Well, sometimes I feel like the United States is involved too much. I mean, there are some countries where people enjoy their lives. They're like perfectly fine, but it's just not American to, uh, so the America usually imposes their uh, beliefs on them, like democracy. And uh, there are some communist like governments I mean, theoretically, communism is supposed to work, but it really doesn't. So uh, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but... You know, in the context yeah. of the film, we could, one, one could argue um, that the United States intervention in Syriana 
as in the United States killing the rising Amir, was truly a bid to provide stability in the region for the foreseeable future. I mean, we're talking about a region in the world um, where as much as a shakeup, such as the Arab Spring, can lead to now, you know, a decade of conflict, uh, people dying um, all over petty differences in belief. So let's say this Amir had not been killed by the United States. Let's say this Amir did end up, uh, or this rising Amir did end up as Amir. Um, and he did impose his westernized ideas um, and principles on his nation. We're talking the enfranchisement of women, um, equal rights of women, and an open uh, market system where oil is sold more openly and, and bid out more fairly. Is that something that nations that run under a doctrine of harsh Sharia law, such as Iran, could have handled? Is that something that would have shaken up the region far too much um, to the point where it would have actually inhibited the United States' international goals had they let him take power? I think that's a very interesting question because that sort of strikes the root of this whole film. And that's, can we Americanize, can we democratize, can we liberalize these countries in the Middle East and have them be perfect reflections of the United States? Can we bring this region that's so culturally and religiously different than us under the folds and still have it be completely open and free to us? And I think the answer is no. Because in the case of Iran, like you were mentioning, the white revolution which occurred under uh, Reza Muhammad, um, Muhammad Reza Shah, that illustrated wide right infringement or enfranchisement of women and minority groups and it also saw a liberalization of the economy and it was considered a major success by Western eyes. However, it could not be reconciled with the conservative uh, Islamic elements of the ulama and these forces in uh, Iran and that would initially lead to the Iranian Revolution and sort of like this expansion of this Islamic Republic. And I think the same can be said for Syriana here to where the U.S. beating out all these other oil companies and its pursuit of oil in general illustrates a destabilizing force in the region. We see that through the um, laid off workers that are portrayed in this film. I mean, the U.S. in its attempts to eradicate terrorism also spawns new terrorists every day and I think that's one of the unfortunate elements of our interventionism is that we're creating more issues than we're actually solving. Yeah. Go ahead, Brianna. Uh, I was just going to say I agree with that because, for the most part at least, because um, the radicalism of the region somewhat prohibits any um, change from being made because of all the conflicts that arise because of it, like Zeb was saying earlier. Um, the prospect that, that would that there would be so many conflicts that would arise from any changes mm -hmm. that were trying to be made happen, which yes, change doesn't happen without conflict, but it is very hard to see and it could be very far out, but it's very hard to see any major changes happening anytime soon. You know, and, and I think an extension of this as we begin to dig deeper, you know, we understand that terrorism is the idea of a violent force without an allegiance to any form of officially recognized organization. Um, and so this is, this is one problem we must reconcile. We must reconcile a group of individuals who hate the idea of America but who have no national allegiance 
But then we have to reconcile with nations who hate America. You know, when we see the Ayatollah, uh, Khomeini making comments, chanting death to America, death to Israel, death to the people who share common interests to the United States, do we ever, as the United States, have a hope of entering places in the Middle East and spreading our beliefs when the very ideas that we believe in are, are being desecrated in these countries? Is there hope to spread the beliefs of the United States into the Middle East without harming the culture and without harming ourselves? I honestly don't think that, that there's much hope, if at all, because uh, it, over in the Middle East, a lot of people are setting the ideas in radical ideas that the United States is bad, that Western ideas are bad, and you can't kill an idea. It's impossible to kill an idea. Ideas will always linger for a long time, forever. And I don't think that as long as these ideas still exist, the United States way of government will never uh, take place in the Middle East. Yeah, and this is one issue where, in all honesty, I just don't know. Because I think trying to push all of these ideas and these concepts onto people that are completely, that it doesn't flow with their religion and with their culture. I think that can never produce an ideal system, no matter how hard we try. I think the only means that the Middle East could ever find stabilization and democratization and all these values that the West holds so sacred is organically. They have to find it on their own accord, in their own time. And If we continue to try to protect these values in the Middle East, I fear we will only risk destabilizing it. But at that same time, if we don't try to enforce any of our ideas or just try to spread the ideas of globalization, economic liberalization, then I fear those ideas wouldn't be prevalent in the Middle East at all. So in this can in this question I I'm left sort of wondering myself what the future of the Middle East will truly hold. What point what point does education begin to to be the proper weapon. You know, we can bomb, we can shoot, we can kill, we can maim, we can hurt people trying to improve the conditions for the rest of the world and change a group of people. But if that's not the weapon that historically has ever worked, I mean, we, you know, we see the British in Afghanistan, they couldn't do anything. The Soviets couldn't do anything in Afghanistan. We couldn't do anything in Afghanistan. We used conventional warfare, the idea of kill more of them than you, than they kill of me. Is that applicable here? We're dealing with a new kind of enemy. Rather, instead of shooting them, should we say, here's the opportunity to have a liberal education, you know, the merits of which we are all the product. So, you know, we've all had a very good liberal education in the United States. Um, and is that something that the Middle East could benefit from or even would it begin to accept? You know, I tend to think the Middle East would reject the ideas of a liberal education because it encourages free thinking, a free will thinking outside the box, for lack of a better term. What do you all think? Um, I think that it is possible that they, that they would reject it, but at the same time, it could really benefit them because all their religion tells them are things that don't go along with liberal education at all. And I, I fear that they would not even appreciate anything like that, even though they could because it's, they see it as a Western idea that a lot of times just does not go along with 
30th. I think history truly paints this, and I respectfully disagree with what Brianna was saying in this regard because the Middle East saw a cultural and artistic flowering in between uh, the Western uh, Middle Ages, what we consider the Dark Ages. They saw the rise of really artistic landmarks, and at the same period where a lot of uh, intellectuals in Europe were being, were sort of like destined to spend out their times as scholars and um, just sort of cataloging information. Islamic scholars at the same point were cataloging the the works of Plato and Aristotle, and they saw this tremendous period in the arts and, and science and technology. So I don't think that the Middle East is completely capable of rejecting all this cultural and religious flowering that we that we see in the United States necessarily. But in that same regard, I think so much of what spurs so much violence and hatred against the West and the Middle East is reactionary. And during the 19th and early 20th century, the Middle East became a hotbed for imperialism. And we see this through like the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the conclusion of World War One, where the region was drawn up on geographic terms dictated by Western powers. It wasn't based on ethnic groups or specific landmarks, but strictly due to the will of these powers. And when you start imposing all of these limitations and all these power, and all it, when you start imposing your power against someone who's completely different than you, and I think a lot of the issues in the Middle East today spur from the fact that we don't empathize and we don't understand the people that we're, that we're constantly fighting, I think that really that spurs that sort of reactionary fervor that the Middle East has against us. And if we were possibly capable of bridging the gap and letting these people flower and grow on their own, I think we'd be astounded by the sort of society that would develop. And Carl, it seems as if you do believe there's hope for the Middle East. And I like that. You know, I think we all want to believe that there's hope for the Middle East. And I think historically there has been proof that the Middle East is a beautiful place culturally and you know after the fall of the second or after the end of the second world war we saw that the, the fall of persia and and the creation of iran and even in the early days of iran before the ayatollah came in power before the establishment of this islamic republic we saw a very beautiful country culturally i want to say and i tend to believe that and i hope that someday um, the Middle East um, and all that it stands for and believes in can rectify and begin um, to be comfortable with the ideas of a westernized culture. And I think that sort of stands in stark contrast to Syriana and where it takes a much more realist approach to this to where it, it views the Middle East as constantly being destabilized and as we were talking about earlier the force that we're exerting in the region is coming back against us. We're responding to the enemies that we're fighting already. And I think, in terms of that, this film takes a much more pessimistic look at the future of the Middle East. As, as our teacher even pointed out, there's constantly this movement of uh, Western-educated uh, possible leaders uh, ascending the throne and creating a state that resembles the Western paradise in some respect. But there's this all... there's a pushback between economic and political uh, viability. And I think, as the film showcases, that economic drive will always win out, and it's a pessimistic look, but I think it's still a viable one. It almost seems that the film does, does 
represent the Middle East in a very um, appropriate light for how things have been handled, how things are continuing um, to play out in the Middle East. Um, and I think we have to keep that in mind when we go forward. You know, we are, our generation is the future. And if we can all believe that the future of the Middle East is bright and not what it has been, I think we can begin to adopt policy in the United States um, that differs drastically from the policy that we have had. Um, and I think that the only way that any progress is ever going to be made in the Middle East is when the United States itself begins to adopt a more proactive um, policy. Um, that That is what's truly going to change the game in the Middle East. Okay. Closing thoughts? Otal, do you have something? I just, I don't know. The Middle East is kind of a hard topic to talk about because it's so different from our culture. And uh, you never know, like, what they're thinking over there unless you're actually over there. And That's why it would be beneficial if people were educated on it, which would kind of shine some light onto possible solutions like for the future. Yeah, I just want to, you know, my closing thoughts, I just want to reiterate, you know, I think that there is a possibility of a bright future for the Middle East, but we cannot continue as the United States. Um, to maintain a foreign policy um, that has not worked. And without getting into the detail of the foreign policy and why it hasn't worked, I think we can all understand that the foreign policy that the United States has had for the past 30 years has been detrimental um, to the growth and progress of the Middle East. We have to change that. That's the only way things are going to get better. I'm in total agreement. I think if we keep going at it from the angle that we are, we will only make things worse and we will only continue this cycle of endless and countless violence only through an adoption of a new policy and looking at things from a different angle and truly empathizing with the people that we're talking about in reference. I think only then can we begin to see positive and truly monumental growth in the Middle East. Okay, well that's all for uh, this week's podcast. Um, next week we will be um, reviewing and giving our thoughts on a movie, Charlie Wilson's War. Um, so we look forward to that and hope that it will inspire as much positive conversation as this film and this week's um, instruction has. So thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. See ya. Thanks. Thank you.